You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. Are you happy for the Gospels? There's some specific rules that I want to set out. Now, this is, again, how to approach the Word of God. You'll find that people that don't, you say, what's the importance of teaching the Word of God? Well, I remember I was working at uh, Art Van Furniture one time, and there was a guy, and he says, well, the Bible means whatever it means to the person who's reading it. So whatever you want it to mean, that's what it means. I said, that's not true. I said, the Bible can't mean that because the writers had an intent and the Holy Spirit was supervising the writers and it was intended to mean something. And if that's the case, then the Bible is not like any other book in the whole world and it wasn't written to be uh, like that, but it was. It was written to make sense to people. And so the question is, how do we find out what God's Word is saying to us today? We talked about last week, a little acronym, if you will. We talked about the book. The look and the took. You remember that? The book means, when you look at the book, what is it saying? The look means, what does it mean? And then the took is, what do I do with it? Right? And so we're going to go into the New Testament and we're going to find out how to pull out what the Gospels are saying. Doesn't that sound exciting? Someone say amen. Go with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Someone said, you sound like a professor on Tuesday night. I said, good, that's good. You know, there used to be a day where preachers were full of power, but they're also theologians. Amen? They knew that Bible back and forth. Aren't you glad your pastor knows the Bible back and forth, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, this is Luke writing, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So you have Luke, and if you can't find it, we're just going to rip through these scriptures and and, uh, you can just write it down if if you miss it. So Luke Luke right here recognizes that he took it upon himself because it seemed good to him to talk about all the things that Jesus of Nazareth did and taught. How many can admit this evening that when you've read some of Jesus' things, you've gotten a little bit confused? Right? The kingdom of God is like a dragnet. When it's cast out, it gathers fish. What is, what is he talking about? I mean, I guess you'd have to know what the kingdom of God is and why he's comparing it to a net that goes into the ocean, gathers good fish and bad fish, and gets separated. What does that have to do with anything? And then, Once you find out what he's talking about, what does that have to do with you in 21st century America? Right? But you know what we do as Christians? We like to be, you know, well, eh, I'll just deal with that later. You know, you take that, you set it aside, just move it over to the shelf a little bit. And you say, let's find that scripture where it says, love your enemies. You know, Uh, what about that one scripture that says, I love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. So we're going to use, we're going to go for those scriptures. But what about the ones that you don't know what they mean? They're ambiguous. They are tough to deal with. And so when you see someone that walks around and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, you know, and they want to expound the Bible, ask them what these tough verses mean and see if you can perplex them with those, right? Do you want to be someone in this ministry we, be, we believe in being skilled, sharp, supernatural servants of the Lord? Amen. When people come to Light of Today Ministries, it's my heart and desire to make them people of the Spirit, but also people that are sharp. When people see you out in Kroger or people see you out uh, in the mall, 
And they say you see, you see you uh, praying for a sick person. Or they see you praying and the power of God falls. Or they see you being able to articulate your beliefs. And go toe-to-toe with an atheist. Or go toe-to-toe with someone that uh, is an unbeliever. And you can hold your own and then convert that person. And they see how sharp you are. Or you know how to serve people and you have a heart that's humble. And they say, what churches do you go to? I want them to say, I go to Light of Today, Pastor Chris Palmer. That's my heart, is to make you humble, is to make you a servant. You know, we're, we want to develop families, and we'll talk more about that as our church goes on. But, uh, but one of the ways is that you learn how to read the Bible for yourself so you can have your own Bible studies. Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk about the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel means, we hear this term gospel. This, tip, this word means good news. We all know that, right? But the word gospel was used before it was used referring to the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, and the gospel of John. It was used in ancient antiquity in Greece, and it was used of the good news of a king or some type of ruler that had come back and uh, won a political or military victory. We wouldn't call that today a headline. You know, headline news, CNN. It would be like gospel CNN. The word gospel means headline. So the gospel of the kingdom, you should look at it as the headline of the kingdom. When you see the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should be the good news or the headline of Jesus Christ. That when God came into this earth through Jesus and he interrupted this social system and brought his kingdom, there was headlines. And when Jesus said, go and preach the gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, and it simply means to herald this, this headline. Because they didn't have printing presses back then. They had people. That's why Jesus in Mark chapter 10 sent his disciples out and says, Go preach the kingdom of God. Go tell the headlines. Go let everybody know that Jesus Christ has come. So when you see the Gospels, this is the talk of the town, the news of the day. Then we're going to find out everything that Jesus began to do and everything that Jesus began to teach. Someone say amen. Amen. Okay. So the very first thing you're going to notice about the Gospels, it doesn't take but a few seconds in reading it, is that the Gospels were not written by Jesus himself. This is interesting because when you look at the books of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, or you look at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or 1st and 2nd Peter, uh, Revelation, which was written by John, these were all written by the original authors, but you'll notice that the Gospels were not written by Jesus. As a matter of fact, if Jesus were to write something, he would probably write it in the form of an oracle like the book of Malachi or the book of Micah or the book of you know, Hosea because he would be writing down teachings. But you'll notice that these are actually a biography. But we wouldn't really call these biographies because what do you notice when you first get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They don't talk much about Jesus' whole life. How many of you ever see them talking about anything? You know, you see Jesus being born. You see Jesus and the wise men coming to his house when he's a young boy. You see Jesus when he's in the temple, maybe about 12 years old, and he's confounding the religious leaders. But other than that, what do we know about Jesus' childhood other than he was a carpenter? We have about the first 29 years of his life completely silent. And then we have the last three or some say two and a half years of his life. And you'll see that the way that this was written is in the form of an ancient biography. If you look at Greco-Roman writing, the style of the day in an ancient biography was to talk about a hero or a character that would come into the earth and you would spend most of the time talking about the significant years of his life. 
And not only would you talk about the significant years of your life, what is even more significant about the Gospels is that you'll find that in the Gospels, most of the writings pay most attention to the last couple days of his life. Have you noticed in the book of Mark how much time out of 16 chapters are spent talking about the last couple hours of his life? I mean, you'll see that Mark 16, Mark 15, Mark 14, three chapters right then and there, maybe even up to Mark Mark, uh, chapter 8 where Jesus starts talking about his death. That's all in about three weeks' time. Why did the gospel writers choose to talk about these small percentages of Jesus' life? Well, you've got to go back and understand how the gospels were written. The very first thing that you'll notice about the Gospels is that you have Matthew, you have Mark, and you have Luke, and you'll start to realize that these are all the same. How many of you ever met Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you said, wait a second, these are the same stories. Did you know that 95% of the book of Mark, 95% of the book of Mark is found in Matthew and Luke? So you know what this is telling us? It's telling us that One of these had to have been written first. They're the same. And you'll discover that the very first gospel that was written was by this guy right here, and his name is Mark. And the reason why Mark decided that he was going to write the gospel is because he wanted to take up an account of the life of Jesus. This Judean king that spent most of his time in Galilee And when he decided that he wanted to die, he went to Jerusalem. And Mark says, wait a second, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. I need to take up an account so that I can publish the works of Jesus and tell it to pagan kings and tell it to pagan people and tell it to the pagans because what was Jesus' command? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. But how are they going to do this unless they have something written down about Jesus? There's nothing written about this guy. Nothing official. But here's the thing. It wouldn't count unless it was apostolic. I mean, there's people that supposedly knew Jesus. But what about his original followers? They didn't write anything down. Why didn't Peter write? Well, a lot of these guys didn't know how to write and read. So it took people that had talent to do it. And there's this guy named Mark. But here's the question is, who's Mark? Was he really qualified to write a gospel? Are you guys here this evening? Yes. Well, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Let's find out who this guy Mark is and find out where these Gospels are coming from. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. I'm all fired up tonight, guys. Can you tell? I'll give you guys a little history lesson here. That way when people say, why do you believe what you believe? You can say, this is why I believe what I believe. Praise God. 1 Peter 5, 13, it says, The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so does Marcus, my son. Someone say Mark. 1 Peter 5, 13. So this is the Apostle Peter writing at the end of his apostleship and at the end of his life in Rome where he was beheaded by the Emperor Nero in 64 AD, and he makes mention of of his son Mark. Now, the word son in the New Testament is used to describe someone that is extremely close to you. So, um, if you had someone who was your companion and you were the mentor over, you'd call him your son. So, Peter is telling you that he's with this guy Mark. But where did Peter meet Mark at? Well, if you have your Bible, go with me to Acts 12, verse 12. I'll show you. It's funny how the Bible just connects like this. 
Acts 12, 12. And it says here, I'm just going to zoom through these. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house. Oh, you know, let's just, let me give you the context here. You have Peter. He's been preaching the gospel. He's had a really bad day. Here he is preaching the gospel, doing everything Jesus told him to do, and he finds himself in prison. That's the whole sermon right there. You know, Brother Neil, you can do everything God tells you to do. You can do everything the Lord tells you to do, and it does not even work out for you. You end up in prison. You ever had something happen like that to you before? <laughs> it's like, God, you got me in this prison. But here's the thing. If God got you in the prison, he's responsible to get you out. Do you believe that? That's why Peter was sleeping, because he knew Jesus put him there, and if he's supposed to get out, he's going to send an angel, and he sure did. He touched that chain, the chains fell off. Peter walked out the house. Where's he supposed to go? He decides to go to the house of a woman named Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This isn't John the Apostle. This is John. Mark. John Mark. John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Roman name. So Peter goes to this house and he discovers, you know, this is Mary. They've all been praying for him. And he finds this guy, Mark, there. And so Mark becomes his companion in traveling. And what do you think they talked about? How to make sandwiches? Their favorite basketball team? They talked about the life of Jesus. So this guy, Mark, spends all his time around Peter and he decides it's probably a good idea that before Peter gets his head cut off, I should probably write some of this stuff down. So he does. And he writes 16 chapters. And you'll discover that Mark has one of the most abrupt endings. The book of Mark just ends. Mark just kind of just falls off the cliff. You know, one of the theories is that something happened to Mark before he actually finished his gospel. One of the theories is that he wanted it to end abruptly because it would get you to reflect more sharply on everything he said before. And there was themes in this book, but this, uh, this gospel got circulated. It was written in Greek, and it wasn't written in Hebrew. So it starts getting passed around. But here's the thing. Mark, we're going to see in just a second, that gospel writers, okay, told you everything they wanted you to know about Jesus. But they had their own way of wanted you to, wanted you, wanting you to see it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you, see you, go, you go see the movie American Sniper, right? So my brother went and saw it, and he comes home. He's going to tell me the movie. But what he's going to do is he's going to tell me the movie the way he wants me to see the movie. You understand the difference? Yeah. It's very hard for someone to tell you something without them wanting to tell it to you without you seeing how they wanted to tell it to you. You know, uh, that's what makes good journalism. They teach you in journal journalism school, don't bias the story. Report it exactly the way it's supposed to be reported. Okay? If you know, and you can understand how that works. But, that's not how the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writers. Because you'll discover that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are known as synoptics, the synoptic gospels, that's a big word, let me divide it in half. Sin, you know, let's go sync my phone. I'm going to sync my phone, right? Sync means together. And optics, fiber optics, my optical eyes, means to see. So these are supposed to be seen together. So God wanted you to see the life of Jesus through the work of Mark and how Mark wanted you to see it. God wants you to see the life and ministry of Jesus the way that Luke wanted you to see it. 
and Luke is a physician, and we can't talk about all these guys tonight. And God wanted you to see the life of Jesus through the way Matthew saw it. And Matthew happened to be one of Jesus' disciples. So you have a doctor who's very meticulous in his gospels. You'll see that he uses details. Jesus didn't just sit down on the grass in, Mark, in, Luke, in Luke's gospels. Jesus sat down on the green grass. Very details. You'll notice in the healing stories of Luke. Luke just talks to you like he's a physician, being very descriptive. And he lets you see it through Mark, and he lets you see it through Matthew, okay? So with that said, um, let me say this. Number one is that when you decide that you're going to read the Gospels, understand these two points and write them down if you're taking notes tonight, that number one, the first thing you need to know is that the writers have selected material about Jesus. John chapter 21, verse 22. Let's go there. Let me show you what I mean. Excuse me, John 21, verse 25. This is one of the most frustrating verses in the whole Bible, Della. This one frustrates me. How many of you have ever gotten to a frustrating verse in the Bible? You just want to just say, oh, I wish God would have done something different about that. Anyone's ever gotten that before? No? You guys are looking at me like I'm speaking Spanish. <laughs> A frustrating verse. I know people say, oh, I believe everything. No, there's verses that frustrate you, trust me. There are. This one right here, John 21, 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain all the books that should be written. Amen. <laughs> That's how John writes his, ends his gospel. He says, well, you know, here's 21 chapters of everything Jesus did and you can compare everything in my gospel to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, but there's so much more that all the books in the world couldn't contain. That's hyperbole for saying that. He did a whole lot of stuff. Exaggerated statements. And uh, you think to yourself, okay, and so why don't we have those? Why didn't somebody write those? Why didn't J. Iris write those? Why didn't... Well, we don't know why. But we do know this, that they saw a whole lot of stuff. Peter saw a whole lot of stuff. And when Mark was with Peter... He probably took, no, not probably, he took by the direction of the Holy Spirit everything that he heard Peter say that was important and put it into his writing. So the most important things that Jesus did, observed by Peter, given to us by Mark, are in his account and are expanded by Matthew and by Luke. So we can trust that these synoptics have given to us a perfect ocular picture of the things that God wanted us to know through His Son, Jesus Christ. They're trustworthy. Even though He did a lot of things, it's very possible that Jesus probably repeated a lot of His teachings a lot of times. It's very possible that He was in Caesarea Philippi, and when He was in Nain, or maybe when Jesus went down to, into the Decapolis, wherever He went, He said a lot of the same teachings. So we got a good amount of His life. Do you believe it? And the miracles that we should see. So, number one, they selected material about Jesus. And number two, after selecting it, they arranged it to give us the story of Jesus. So the first key in understanding the Gospels is not just reading what Jesus said. Not just reading what Jesus did. How about we, tonight, in this study... Hey, and this is where it's going to become very fruitful for you. 
Pay attention to how the Holy Spirit decided to give to us the most precious account that has ever existed before. He didn't just do it through one robotic person, Luke. He didn't just say, Luke, just be a tape recorder and write all this stuff down. He didn't just give it through one person that we could say, well, it's his opinions. He gave it through three people with three different distinct personalities who would probably have their own way of looking at it. And so the most fruitful thing that we can do is pay attention to how they have arranged it. Do you see the difference? How did they lay it out? I mean, me and Brett and Neil here, this is Neil, he's nude this evening. <laughs> me and Brett and Neil here, we could go outside and we could watch all of a sudden, you know, a car drive into a building and the building explode. A rather radical example, but then if you ask Brett what happened, and then you ask me what happened, then you ask Neil what happened, we will tell you that a car ran into a building, the building exploded, but I can guarantee you can get something different about what actually happened based upon talking to the three of us. That's how you put it all together. You see how we're doing this? And so number two is that in the Gospels, we're going to deal with tonight what Jesus actually said and the placement of what Jesus said. And they're very two different things. They're two different things. You're going to see how they're placed. I'm going to show you just an example what I mean by this. Um, for example, go with me to Matthew chapter 4, 8 through 10. Now, I want to show you why this is important. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Now, this is, let me give you an example of this. I'm going to challenge your thinking a little tonight. And again, I say that these... Tuesday nights are to challenge your head, and uh, Friday nights are to challenge your heart. Someone say heart and head. Both two important things, right? We want to have passionate people that love the Lord, and but we also want to have smart people, right? Matthew 4, 8 to 10, in, in the book of Matthew, I just did a 21-page outline of the kingdom of God from the book of Matthew. And the central theme in Matthew is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Two different terms that give you two different aspects of his kingdom. And look what it says here. Actually, let's just go to Matthew 4 because I, I need you to see the bigger picture. Matthew 4. Yeah. And it says here, this is the temptation of Jesus. You know, verse number 2, he's fasting. Verse number 3, the tempter says, command these stones to be turned to loaves of bread. Come, uh, verse number 5 says, the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and tempted him to cast himself down. And then verse number 8, it says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Okay, so we see the bread temptation. We see that he's at the pinnacle of the temple. And then we see the last temptation. He's tempted to see the, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Do you see that? So what do we see here? We see the bread. Someone say the bread. bread. We see the temple. And we see, you can say it, but it's okay. <laughs> then we see the kingdoms. And who's talking about this? Yeah. Okay. But what happens if we go to Luke? Go with me to Luke chapter 4. Okay, here we are. The temptation of Jesus. Same temptation. Not two different ones. Same thing they're talking about. 
Verse number one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. He was tempted by the devil. Verse number three, the devil said, if you're the Son of God, command the, breads to, the, the stones to be bread. Jesus says in verse number four, it's written, man does not live by bread alone. Okay, temptation number two in Luke's gospel. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. Wait a second. We have the bread. And the next thing we have the kingdoms. Wait a second. This is not in the right order, is it? And then said to him, To me I'll give you all this authority. And Jesus says, It's written, You'll worship the Lord your God. And then, verse number 9, Took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Uh-oh. We have it in a different order. Is this a problem? Exactly. It's the same thing in different order. But the question is then, why? Maybe they got the facts wrong, or maybe they did it on purpose. Perception. Perception. But how about, what is it they want us to perceive? They want you to perceive something. So now we're starting to see, it's more than just what Jesus did. It's how the writers wanted you to see what Jesus did. And a lot of the brilliance and the, a lot of the Holy Spirit inspiration inside of His Word has to do with, can you perceive what the authors want you to see? I can tell you that when you start training your reading and the Holy Spirit gets inside of your reading and trains you to pick up on these things, that is when you go from being an average reader to a skilled reader and you go from having the elementary milk of the Word of God to the meat of the Word of God and you start walking in true divine revelation where your heart is hooked up with the same heart that the apostles had who first witnessed it. Yeah. And here's the catch. 99.9% .9 of Christians will never get there. Because do you know what? They don't want to be there. They do not love the Word of God that much. They would rather you know how to give a good life. They would rather you know how to fix all their problems. They would rather leave it all to the people like me to do it like this. They would rather do all these other things. And I can tell you, if they're disinterested, that's fine. But Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. What's more important than this? He said, well, this doesn't fix my problems. It's not supposed to fix your problems. We're going to have problems, and we're never going to be problem-free. But I can tell you this. Life makes the most meaning when you tie the Word of God around your heart to such a point that you start picking up on themes and seeing how the Gospel writers did this kind of stuff. And it takes work, and it takes effort, but it is so fruitful when you start to see what was going on. And the re real reason is simply because Matthew's theme was the kingdom. And when you get to the book of Luke, Luke has a humongous emphasis on Jesus going into Jerusalem and spending his time there and mentions Jerusalem quite a bit in that book. And for, uh, for, for several particular reasons, Luke saw that Jerusalem was very important. That's why he said Jerusalem. Amen. Okay. So, uh, write this down if you're taking notes this evening. Here's how we do it. Uh, Della, can, can you please bring me some, some napkins and maybe some water, please? Thank you, Della. Okay. <laughs> to do this, you say, so Reverend Palmer, you know, I, I want to do this. I, I got nothing to do. You know, I'm snowed in. My car won't go nowhere. My car won't start. How do I do this? Number one. Number one. If you're taking notes this evening. Number one. Ask yourself this question. What does the story that we are reading 
Tell us about Jesus. So when you're reading the story, the very first thing that you want to do is remember that the writers are trying to tell you about Jesus. This is what they did, right? What did Luke say? He says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the Gospels are the headlines about the King of the Kingdom, and His name is Jesus. Amen. So the first thing you've got to realize is, what are these telling us about Jesus? But after you get to that point, that would be the surface level. After you unearth that. Number two is, what is the Gospel writer trying to say to his reader by the way that he puts the stories together? Thanks. Thanks. Did you hear what I said? Yeah. What is this say about Jesus? Number one, I'll tell you something um, while you're writing down. This uh, kind of teaching is, maybe someone could do a better job teaching it than I do. But if you went and paid thousands of dollars for Bible study, you would get the same information. This is his... This is as deep as it's going to get. I go to pains every week preparing these because I want to give to you seminary quality stuff. If you went and spent $25,000 on a seminary education, this is the kind of stuff you would see, and I am just cliff noting it for you. All that to say this. Amen? <laughs> so if you're wondering how good this stuff is, you may not be interested in it, or may not think it's good, or may think I did a poor job teaching it to you, but it is good information, if you're interested. If you're not, then it's not. It's, we'll talk about basketball afterwards. Amen. <laughs> Number two, um, so let's go with uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We all know this verse. It's very simple, but let's try and pull something out of this. Let's, can we do that? Can we jump into an exercise early this evening? Does that sound okay? Aren't you happy to be talking about Jesus? A lot of people are talking about a lot of stuff tonight, but they're not talking about Jesus. Okay, so we have Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. We're not going to read it tonight. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. We talked about it. We're going to come back to the Good Samaritan tonight. We're going to talk about how not to read parables. You know, parables are some of the most misunderstood texts in the whole Bible. We're going to talk about it in just a second. Um, but Luke 10, 25, verse 37 is the Good Samaritan, and we all know the moral of the story without even having to get in, into it is that we should love our neighbors above our class, above our race, and above maybe even our religion. Just because someone is a Muslim doesn't give you the right to treat them bad, does it? Just because someone's an atheist, does that mean that you can cut in front of them in a grocery store? If you found out that there was a, a, a Buddhist who fell over and scraped his knee, you're not going to help him up because he's a Buddhist? That's not the love of God. You're supposed to help those people even if they don't want to convert to your religion. You're supposed to help them when they're hungry. This is the, 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 you know, you're supposed to reach out to them. That's why sometimes it's like, you want to accept Jesus? We want to give you a sandwich? And No, no, well, give me that sandwich back. We're not helping you. No, no, that's not the gospel. So that's what the Good Samaritan is about. And then you see right after... In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, the next thing, Jesus jumps in and he goes into a village and he's with Mary and Martha. And we know the story of Mary and Martha, that Jesus tells Mary, uh, tells Martha, Martha, get out of that kitchen, you're cooking a chicken for someone that's not going to eat it. Come and listen to me. 
And then after that, you see after verse 42, chapter 11 starts, and Jesus is instructing his disciples how to pray. And he's teaching them how to communicate to the Father in prayer. Now we have the Good Samaritan. Followed by Mary, Martha, followed by instructions on prayer. Now, did it happen this way? I don't know exactly how it happened. I'm sure there was somewhat of a time interval, but our friend Luke sets it up this way. Now remember, we're paying attention to what Jesus said. But we're paying attention how Luke wanted you to see what Jesus said. So if you're doing this, you should ask yourself, what do these have in common? Because you don't just write. When I started writing books, my editor, she would get very upset with me because she would say, your problem is when you start a book, you move three or four chapters into it and it's like lining up chairs. You start with it like this, and you, every row is a little over to the left. Till you get to the last row, and you're all the way to the right, and it's not even lined up anymore. You get what I mean? That's, you lose your train of thought. And all of a sudden, you started trying to say this, you ended up saying this. You need to get it all in line, and it takes hours and days and sometimes months to fix it. But we're going to trust that the, the gospel writers weren't like this. They were following a train of thought. So can we think of anything that these had to do? I mean... Maybe we're not going to get it exactly, but this is going to improve your devotion time. Are you guys here tonight? Okay, well, the Good Samaritan is, I think that this is all teaching about, this is with relationships with others. Right? Isn't God teaching us how we should treat other people? Black, white, doesn't matter. And then, Mary and Martha. This has to do with, how about relationships to who? Jesus, how we should how we should treat Jesus and maybe His Word, right? This is all you need. Sit at my feet and hear my Word. Then you see, intro on prayer. Who is Jesus talking him, telling him to talk to? Father. So we see how Luke is trying to maybe say to us, this is how you should act towards others. This is how you should act towards Jesus. And this is how you should act towards the Father. And inside of this we have, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? That's how us preachers get our Sunday morning sermons. (laughs) They're not just writing random stuff. So what I'm trying to show you tonight is that the key in the Bible is not just paying attention to what he said, paying attention to the authors and knowing that they're real people who did real things and they had real ways of telling you stories. And what happens to us a lot of times is that we get lost in translation. Okay, did you get that? So let's talk about how to read an individual story because before we start learning how to string things together, it'll be helpful for us to Learn how to read individual stories. Okay, number one. You know, I always give the illustration that we should try and juice these stories. You know, like a juicer, the juice man. You guys ever see those commercials, his eyebrows? 
you know, is sticking up like he's taking someone to shake a hedge trimmer, just chop the juice man's eyebrows off. But he does that because he knows that we'll be at a Bible study one day talking about him. Make you want to go buy a juicer, you know. But let's juice. Let's take a story and just run into the juicer. See how the juice we can get out of it. Sound good? Okay. Let's start with Mark chapter four, verse thirty-five. There's a safe story. So let's pretend that it's uh it's a Saturday night and your cable's broke and you can't watch ancient aliens and you know lost or whatever's on these days king of queens so you decide maybe we should just study the bible tonight and you pick this because this is always kind of a fascinating story because I think all of us are interested in nature. And let's look at it quickly. And the same day when the even was come, he says unto them, let's pass over unto the other side. And when they sent the multitude away, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there rose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full and he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. I always wonder how the pillow stayed dried when there was water all in the boat, you know. It must have been one of those plastic pillows, you know, the blow-up pillows. And they awoke him and says, Master, do you not even care that we perish? And he rose and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is it that even the wind and sea obey him? So, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to learn how to poke a hole in this. So we can get it out, what it's trying to say. Are you guys, are you guys still with me? Okay, we'll be done by 9, so I'll give me a few more minutes when we'll be done. So the very first thing that we need to do is we don't deviate from everything that I've taught you guys. You know, this is actually the 10th class that we've done. Don't deviate from your basic principles. You guys ever see the movie Hitch? What does he say? Basic principles. No matter what, no matter who, no matter where. Well, always remember, when you get into the Word of God, basic principles. Ask questions. Right? You are the crime scene investigator. You ever watch the show, Monk? He comes up on the show, sees all this stuff out of place. And do you know why Monk always gets it and Captain Stottlemyre never gets it? Why Lieutenant Disher doesn't get it? Why Monk always is the one? Because Monk always asks the questions that they don't ask. What's more impressive to you when somebody asks you the, gives you the right answer or asks you the right question? The right question is always more impressive because it tells you that person is thinking the right way. So let's ask the right questions and we can use the interrogatives. You have a bag full of tools when you go into the Word of God and they are known as interrogatives. What are interrogatives? The English teacher knows. No clue. What? Oh, you know, who, what, where, when, why, how? <laughs> I don't call it that for oh, Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, well, we'll just pretend that you do. <laughs> Number one, who? Who do we got in this story? Who, we, who do we have in this story? We have Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd, correct? Okay, so that's a good place. So what you do is... You would list on a piece of paper who you have. You have Jesus, disciples, and the crowd. So this probably is going to tell you that 
this has something to do with one of these three groups of people. All right? Whoever we see talk to the most is probably going to tell us who this really had to do with. And then we ask what? So we would write down what? And I'll just tell you some of the what's I got out of here. While crossing a lake, a storm comes and waves swamp the boat. The disciples wake up Jesus. Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. Jesus rebukes the wind. After the storm, Jesus asks his disciples a few tough questions, and after calming the storm, the disciples are terrified. Then you ask yourself, when? During the evening, when the disciples began to cross the sea. So you're basically asking yourself the interrogatives to put this story back together. Then you'd ask yourself, where? This was in a boat. Why? The disciples uh, were angry at Jesus' indifference. And then uh, you go on to how. And then you will see kind of, you, you start kind of putting this together, right? But I won't go into this in great depth because we talked about it. And then after that, you ask yourself the question after answering who, what, where, when, why, and how. What have I observed? What have we observed? And this is what I have as a statement. Jesus and his disciples appear in every verse of this story. So if you look at every verse you'll see that Jesus is talking to his disciples. So if you see Jesus and his disciples bracketed in this story, guess what? You know that this is about Jesus' relationship to the disciples. And if this is about Jesus' relationship to the disciples, then you have to ask the question, what is he trying to teach them? For instance, you go to John chapter 4. You see a woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. First thing that you would do is ask yourself, what is a Samaritan? Why is it significant? Why does the Bible tell you it's a Samaritan? What can you find out about Samaritans? Then you would bracket it and say, okay, this is about Jesus' relationship to this woman, but not just to the woman. She is a federal head or representative of all Samaritans. What you'll find out is that Samaritans were very despised people that were not part of the Mosaic Covenant. And so, the Samaritans are not only representing, the woman is not only representing the Samaritans, the Samaritans are representing Gentiles or ethnos, which simply means people that are not Jews. So that means that it's every other person in this world that is not walking around in that small little country that's three times less the size of Lake Michigan. That's most of the people. You know, uh, I said last week that Israel could fit into Lake Michigan three times. It could fit into Michigan seven and a half times. I know you're looking at the way it's positioned, but if you broke it down by square miles, that's exactly how many times it could fit into it. So this is really about where the significance is that you have this Messiah who is bringing about restoration of the Spirit's administration not only to Israel, but to all the peoples of the earth. And it's a very important story. So you're starting to see how each of these stories is telling a story of its own. Are you guys with me tonight or did I lose you guys? Okay, okay. So that's kind of what uh, we're seeing with that. Um, and we're going to learn how to put these stories together in just a second. Uh, so keep this story in mind. Let me just kind of deviate from this real quick and show you that there's a couple things that you can um, learn where the story tips itself off to you. Inside of a story in the New Testament, look for interpretive clues. Usually, a gospel writer will tip you off himself to let you know the point of the story. He doesn't leave it that ambiguous. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 14 and verse 7. 
Jesus is getting ready to teach his disciples. And this is what it says. Luke 14, verse 7. This is how you read a small story. Luke 14, verse 7. Jesus is getting ready to teach, and it says, When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave this advice. So what do you think the story is going to be about? You have all these people trying to hit, sit, sit at the head of the table. When Jesus decides to give some advice, it would probably tip you off that this story is going to have something to do with arrogance and pride. So if you get something else out of the story, well, you're probably missing the point. <laughs> well, I don't know, I got this revelation from God and God, no, 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 no. What, how about before you get your revelation from God and it becomes your revelation, let's get Luke's revelation first. I think that it would be safe to say that's probably the most important revelation, right? <laughs> or Matthew 5, verse 1 to 2. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach. This would probably let you know that this is a teaching that is going out to people who have decided to follow Jesus. And he teaches his Beatitudes, of course, first, and then he goes on to talk about uh, his interpretation of the law that had to do with the kingdom of God. So this is not for unbelievers, people. This is not for people that are not following the kingdom. This is for people that are pressing hard. The kingdom of God suffers violence. In other words, it was persecuted. But the violence are the ones that are taken by storm. In other words, there has been oppression by the God of this world from trying to keep the Messiah from entering in through all of the oppression that happened in the Maccabean period where you had all of the kings and you had Antiochus uh, Epiphanes 4, setting up the abomination of desolation. During that time, you had uh, Xerxes and Artaxerxes. I mean, all the kings of, uh, of the Old Testament period trying to stop Israel. They'd taken them in Babylon, exiling them, doing all these bad things. And then Jesus shows up and says, now that we've suffered violence, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you're going to have to take it by force. In other words, you're going to have to put up with persecution, and you're going to have to follow me at every expense. So this parable is about people that are willing and serious to follow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you see, this is not about people that aren't following Jesus. So people that say, well, it's just the gospel of inclusion. Anyone can be saved. Uh-uh-uh. Jesus was very serious. The kingdom of God does not come without willingness to suffer persecution. The kingdom of God does not come unless you want to be an obedient, intense disciple. This is not about half-hearted people. Jesus was a very cut-and-dry teacher. That is what he, Jesus says, and you're going to see in just a second when we talk about rhetorical questions, Jesus says, do you think the Son of Man came to bring peace upon the earth? We're going to see in just a second what he meant by that. Um, so number two... Sometimes the author gives you the clarification in the middle of the story. Um, Mark seven nineteen, It says, by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Well, guess what? There's the, there's the interpretation for you. Mark chapter, uh, and sometimes he gives it to you at the end of the story. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 30. Jesus says at the end, 
but many are who first will be last, and many that are last will be first. There is the interpretation for you. No sense of trying to get any other meaning out of it, people. This is what it means. Any revelation that the Lord shows you personally should come from what these people have interpreted for you to mean. Okay, you guys got that? And I say this because the Lord uh, has spoken to me um, just by the, his, his, his precious Holy Spirit. And as a pastor, I take it very serious about my people's beliefs. I'm not so much concerned. I mean, I have compassion on people and they say my car won't start and I haven't been able to get a job. And Those are things God can turn around like that, people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I, uh, I lost my dog, you know, I got hit by a bus. And I, I have compassion. You know, my cousin's dog just died. I mean, it is sad. My heart, listen, I will serve you. My team will serve you. We will help you. These are very important things in life. Do you understand what I mean? But the bigger problem is when I find out your thinking is wrong. When you start to tell me that, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I think all religions go to heaven. Well, now we have an issue. Or, you know, I, I just believe that uh, this new revelation, these are, these are things that I cannot, I have to labor hard in doctrine. The Bible says, do the work of the evangelist. So I have Jordan Poland and Heather going on the streets and doing the work of the evangelist. Thank God for that. We need to tell people and pray for the sick. The Bible says, uh, you know, to do the work of the ministry. Brad and Emily and Char and the people that come and that serve my team. This is the work of the ministry. The chairs just don't walk in here and set themselves down. Blackboard doesn't just get in the car at night. This is the work of the ministry. And then the Bible says labor in word and doctrine. This is what I do. And I have to make sure that you're getting the right stuff. That you're being activated. And so we as a team put this together. The Bible also says to care to the needs of the wick and the, uh, the, the sick and the widow. This is pastoral care, and as our church starts, we'll be doing pastoral care, hospitals, funerals, all this kind of stuff. Because not one need is important, but we can't neglect being smart, getting our beliefs to line up. And the reason I teach this class is because I don't want people to enter in the wide. They've got to go through the narrow. And I've discovered that the kingdom of God is a very, 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 narrow road to enter into it. You have to be willing to forsake everything. Jesus told the, the, the young man and says, give up all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. He didn't mean give it all up to the poor. Jesus, this was a special case because if that's the case, we're all in trouble because I have, I have this MacBook. This was a very expensive computer. This was expensive. What Jesus was saying is, you have to be willing to leave it all. And if that is not your posture in your heart, you're not fit for the kingdom. Sorry. And you know what Jesus didn't do is go back and say, wait, 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 wait. We'll just be, no, no. Jesus says, fine, go. I'm the greater than Solomon. Leave. I'm the greater than Jonah and I've come. Either you're going to get it right or you're not going to follow me. Well, I just can't do that. Do you know how powerful the Holy Spirit is in your life? People tell me they can't follow Jesus because they got this issue. Do I say, do you know that he has sent to you the promise of the Father who is the mighty Holy Spirit? He's powerful than any addiction. He's powerful than any type of, uh, of, of poverty that you have in your life. Well, I only have $2 in my bank account. Then you should dance before God because he is enough. Yeah. I was listening to a song this week and, you know, with everything that's going on and starting a ministry, and, and the song was just, it was an old song. I mean, I don't know where it came from. I just ministered to me. The song was, you are more than enough. All of you is more than enough. And I started thinking all the things that I don't have yet. And I started thanking God and saying, God, you're more than enough. You're more than enough. You are more than enough for me. You are more than enough. So what? 
You don't have a spouse. God, you're more than enough. You don't have all the money you need. God, you're more than enough. You don't have a job that you're happy with. God, you are more than enough. Well, you know, you, you, your puppy just died. God, you are more than enough. Well, you find out someone in your family is sick. God, you are more than enough. You know why? Because it's you, through you. Everything that I have is met because I have your kingdom beside me. And I'm willing to let it all go because you know what? I never had it to begin with. So why not just let it go? Because I have an eternal kingdom. This is the message of the kingdom, my God. And if you want it, you have to be a disciple. But you know what? You're going to have to come Friday night to hear more about that. Amen. <laughs> Talk about being hard pressed into the kingdom. Someone told me, well, you know, you just, you know, people have said to me before, Brother Palmer, you know, you're very intense. I want to say, well, I get that from my Heavenly Father. He's pretty intense about this. I'm not going to turn it down. If anything, I'm going to turn the dial up. Because I want people to have this spirit. I don't mean the poverty spirit. Let's just drive around, beat up jalopies, and go around with holes in our shoes. No, that's a bad testimony. But I want this spirit like, hey, listen. I don't want this world. It's, it's passing away. It's fading. I, I, when I go into the malls, my heart breaks for the people. I'm not, woe is Bethsaida and woe is Jerusalem in the mall, but I'm looking at it like, I don't want this. Right. Someone's telling me, oh, Brother Paul, I need you to pray for me so I can be this model. I thought, this is really what you want. You want to be a model in Hollywood. Do you realize what's going to happen to you when you get out there? You are going to get corrupted. There was a, an actor, uh, was a child star of the 80s. I was watching. He said, I wish, he was pretty much saying, I wish I would have never have gotten involved as a child. I was famous before I even knew how to say my name. He says, I wish I would never gotten involved because of all the issues that I had as a kid. He, was, he said that Hollywood is full of nothing but pedophiles and devil worshipers. Isn't that something? I think we have a better kingdom. I'm not trying to be Pastor Hollywood and going out and getting in. Listen, go out there and get people saved, but you know what? What's the most important to me? The kingdom. Can I just, I feel like preaching tonight, amen? Okay. So, um, I got to cut some of this in half. Um, okay, this is something that is, uh, that will help you, okay? Be alert for story shifts through direct discourse. Now, if you want to find an interesting way of studying the Bible, take a portion or a story, okay? And pull out the direct discourse and, and, and just put everything else aside. Just go through the discourse that's going on. For instance, Matthew 17, 1 through, uh, Matthew, uh, Mark 4, 35 through 41. The story we just read, remember? You know, Brett and Emily, if you're having Bible study night as a couple, or you're with your Bible study that you guys do, um, this is something interesting you can do to make the Bible. This is a little exercise. Every story that has dialogue... Or Caleb and Wit back there. You're doing Bible study night on Valentine's Day, you know? Huh? Put a voice to it. Put a you can put a Kermit the Frog and Miss P. <laughs> you can do that. Oh, you do? Well, that's a good way of doing it. Well, put a voice to it and just take out the whole story and just isolate the, um, the, the words that's being talked. And you know what you'll discover? Theological principles will pop out real quick. Watch. Here it is, just the, vo just the uh, dialogue. Verse 35. Let's cross to the other side of the lake. Verse 38, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Verse 39, Silence, be still. Verse 40, Why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? Verse 41, Who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. Quick and to the point. Yeah. That's the whole story right there. Basically, shut up and let God be God. <laughs> because he's supernatural God. You see how fast it just popped up? You saw what was going on. Okay, let's do another one. Matthew 17, 1-13. 
Verse number four. This is the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we just pulled out. We just, this is cool. We just pulled out everything else but the dialogue. Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Then God speaks from heaven. This is my dearly son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, get up, don't be afraid. Verse number 9, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Verse 10, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Verse 11 through 12, Elijah is indeed coming to get everything ready, but I tell you, Elijah has come, but he wasn't recognized, and they chose to abuse him, and in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. This is a pretty interesting verse right here. You know what you start to see in the theological principle? Is that a greater than Moses is here, a greater than Elijah is here, and this is the Messiah, and even seeing him in all his glory, he's still going to suffer. And don't tell anyone what you've seen until he suffers. What's Jesus doing right here? Do you know what he's doing? You ever wonder why Jesus never would allow people to say what they saw? This is only really seen in the book of Mark. We're going to talk a little bit about Mark in a second, but Mark was one of the most intelligent writers. But let's picture this for a second. Here we are, all of us. Jesus hasn't died, and we're his disciples, and he lets us go on to the Mount of Transfiguration for a moment, and we see who we don't even know who he really is yet. Who is this man that the wind and waves obey him? And all of a sudden, we see him in his glory. This is going to be the Jesus we see come back on the Mount of Olives in the second coming to consummate his kingdom. But God allows his disciples to see it for a testimony. Then Jesus says, don't you even think about going and telling people what you saw. Is it that he didn't want anyone to know that he was the Son of God? That's not the case. Because he admitted to being the Son of God when he called himself the Son of Man. I've told some of you guys this, the Son of Man is even a more messianic term than the Son of God. And when he was asked if he was the Son of God, he said he was. But how about it's possible that the disciples didn't really know who Jesus was as the Messiah completely. See, you see Jesus gets this great glory come on him. You're ready to go tell everyone that he is the Messiah and he's about to overthrow Caesar politically and take Herod down to business. Because in the prophets and in the law, this is what the Messiah was coming to do. Restore the Messianic kingdom of Israel. Bring in a time of peace. It was said through the Messiah that eyes would be open, the blind would see, that there would be healing in his tassels. But what they did not see was the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus introduced as the Messiah, and that is, before the kingdom came in great glory, it was going to have to come in great suffering. And the disciples had not understood that yet. So if they went and preached the gospel in great glory without suffering, they would be misrepresenting the kingdom. And he says, well, just be patient. You know what that application we can draw is? How about before you go and blab everything God's telling you, just be patient. Because sometimes you don't see the big picture. Oh, God told me this. Get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, a little picture of a dove flying through a rainbow. No, no, no. Just be patient. Let God, let God talk to you, man. Let God work it out before you tell him everything. Amen.
This is what is known as messianic secrecy in the book of Mark. Okay, let me cut this real quick. We got a few minutes here. Um, wow, we just got, I got so much. Okay, um, okay, let me talk to you about uh, <laughs> um, intercalations real quick. Intercalations. This is called sandwiching. I know it's a, it's a big word, intercalation. Let's call it sandwiching. You guys know what sandwiching is? You got one. You got two, and you find something in the middle. Looks like a sandwich, right? Mark was a, and, and I want to give you all the intercalations. I don't have time. You can go and Google it, and it'll show you every intercalation um, and, and pericope that's in, in, in the scripture. And I'm not going to get into all this time. Let me give you an example of what this is. And it's really used in the book of Mark. It's very interesting. Intercalation is Mark's way of writing where he takes a story that is seemingly almost irrelevant. Actually, the whole uh, narrative could do without it. And he puts it in the middle, kind of randomly, kind of unexpectedly, between two things that kind of line up with each other, and then you got the story in the middle. And he does it as a mechanism to enhance what's being said here, or what's being said here. And it works beautifully. You guys want to see one? This is how you get a lot of revelation when you start picking up on this. Remember, what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about not just what Jesus said and did like we saw in Luke. We're talking about placement. Right? Are you guys enjoying this tonight? You're trying to get me fired up tonight. Okay. Has any of you guys been using this stuff since we started? Okay, intercalation. Go with me to uh, Mark chapter 14, 54. We're going to do something interesting with this. Who is the first gospel writer? Let's see if you've been paying attention tonight. Okay. Do you guys really want to be impressive? You can call it Mark and Priority. That, mean, <laughs> that means Mark wrote first. Okay. Mark 14.55. Let's read this. <clears throat> now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now he's, this is Jesus on trial. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked them, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And this is where you can get Jehovah's Witnesses who want to say that Jesus never admitted that. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, which is Him, I'll turn from Daniel chapter 7, seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and says, What further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And he began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Stop right there. Okay. Jesus on trial. This is what we would say, A1. 
Where's A2? Go and skip over verse 66 through 72 because that's B1. Let's just go to verse number 15. And as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You've said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked them, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So now we have Jesus before Pilate. Doesn't this seem to fit? I mean, if we went from this to this, looks like the story flows pretty good, doesn't it? Does anybody disagree? Come on, you guys are looking at me like, you know, I'm, you know. Sorry, it looks pretty good, right? Sarah? Della looks good? Tanya? Just... Uh, Avery, if uh, if you saw it like this, would you would you would you scratch your head like the, the logic has been broken? No, it's pretty good. Okay, Avery really thought about that one. <laughs> but look what happened here. We have B one, something that kind of gets thrown in there as a free chicken nugget, free onion ring. You know, I say this before. Have you ever gone to Burger King and order some French fries and in your fries there's an onion ring? Avery, you ever done that? <laughs> but you're excited because you didn't know if you wanted onion rings or fries, and you get both, right? You don't take the onion ring and say, here you go. No, that, just keep the onion ring, just our bad. Here we go. And as Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and says, you're also, we're with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began and said by the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man you speak of. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. So the intercalation or the sandwich is Peter denies Jesus. Now, for this lovely juicy mint right here, can anybody tell me the significance, perhaps, of why Mark inserted this into the story? At this point, although Peter was mentioned, he puts, you know, Peter was mentioned in here, so it's not completely out of place. But he placed this part where Jesus predicted this over Peter's life right here. Tell me why. Sarah. Ah, exactly. Very good, Sarah. Here, Cam, you can have this mint for you right there, buddy. <laughs> I'll bring it now and later next time. The reason is, let me explain, if you didn't hear what Sarah said. The religious leaders and the high priests had just told Jesus, if you're the Son of Man, then prophesy. 
And Jesus wouldn't do it. But at the same time, they were saying, you're not the son of man because you're not able to prophesy. Jesus' prophecy over Peter's life was being fulfilled that very second. So do you see the irony at play? What kind of prophecy was that? You're going to deny me three times. I know the hearts of all my people. And here they prophesy, prophesy. And over somewhere on the courtyard, there's a guy bawling, one of Jesus' closest disciples, because Jesus told him just days ago, you're going to deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. And there it is, right there for you. But you know what Mark never does? Mark never tells it to you that way. But Jesus was prophesying over it. No, 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 no. He hides it there for you. Wow. Is there others like that in Scripture? Just, you can Google them and they'll give you the intercalations and pericopes of Mark. Just do it. It's interesting. I don't want to go on with that. Okay, so one more thing. Um, rhetorical questions. Let me deal with this real quick. Jesus was a master of questions. How many of you know this? You know, when Jesus asks a question in Scripture, do you ever get the feeling that maybe he doesn't want an answer back? <laughs> You kind of get the feeling like, I should probably leave him alone at this point. Well, the, the, the truth is he doesn't want an answer. And so, when you're dealing with the rhetorical questions of Jesus, the best thing for you to do as an exercise is to just turn them into statements. You'll get the point. You know, if someone says, ask a rhetorical question, well, I can't think of one right now, but let's look at Jesus's. Matthew 5, 46. What are you doing? Are you doing? Yeah. Matthew 5, 46. Jesus says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Matthew 6.27 Can you can all your worrying add a single moment to your life? Verse number 3, then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And Luke 12.51 Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. Questions. So, let's turn these into statements. Number one, if you love those who love you, what reward is that for you? How about Jesus was really saying, you don't get any reward for loving only those who love you. Right. Number two, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Let's just say, you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. Number three, why are you afraid you still have no faith? You're afraid and still have no faith. And finally, do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? Jesus was saying, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. Ooh. What's that do for our theology where we think that Jesus wants everyone to be real nice and happy and everybody just get along? It's not what he did. Jesus came and says, I've come to divide people against each other. Wow. Has Jesus divided people against each other? You better believe he's divided people against each other. There are people killing each other today because of Jesus. That's how you do rhetorical questions. And just one more word real quick before we close. Is that, did you guys enjoy tonight? Has it been good? Is that you cannot understand uh, the Gospels of Jesus until you understand the term kingdom of God. <clears throat> Jesus, when he taught, everything that he said, everything, everything that he taught, his parables, which we didn't actually get to tonight, um, had to do with the kingdom of God. And we'll get to parables at another time. I just We just don't have the time for it. I always promise that we'll be out by yeah, 9 o'clock after we do offer and everything like that. 
So you understand the term kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is simply a messianic age. It was an Old Testament term. It was the age of the kingdom. It was a time of peace, righteousness, where the people would live in peace. John the Baptist announced this coming. And Jesus announced that his ministry, this kingdom, had come and was at hand. He drove out devils. He cast out demons. Those were the signs that the kingdom was here. But Jesus made a switch to the kingdom, and he started preaching the mystery of the kingdom. He was the final interpreter of the law. So the kingdom, if someone asks you, has the kingdom come? The answer is yes, the kingdom has come. It is now. It is here. But if the kingdom has come, the second question is, then why aren't we living in a time of peace? That's because the kingdom has not been consummated. For the kingdom to come, there had to be suffering. There had to be an, uh, you know, um, the death on the cross and the resurrection. And after that, you'll discover that the kingdom has yet to be consummated. So until that time, I've taught this in uh, my um, Friday nights. We have this age, and we have, the, and we have the kingdom. And they exist side by side until the kingdom is finally consummated. And the kingdom will go on, and this age is going to end, and we'll have the age of ages. But that's a whole eschatologic, that's a whole end time discussion we can't get into tonight. But you understand that Jesus came to bring the kingdom. Everything Jesus talked about, every single thing he said, parables, beatitudes, teachings on giving, the moral law, everything, every single, someone say everything. everything. E say everything. everything. Everything he taught had to do with the kingdom. There was nothing he said that ended in the kingdom. He came for the kingdom. The question is, Maybe we'll get to next week is, where does the kingdom of God go when we get into the, into the gospel of Acts and into the, in the gospels? Because you don't really see much about the kingdom. Or do you? Dun, dun, dun. To be, to be continued. Amen. Did you enjoy it tonight? Go ahead. Now that you've heard the light of today, connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390 or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.